During this pandemic, we've had a chance as a family to uh, watch a few movies. And um, one of the ones that we watched recently was Amistad. And it's an older movie, but it's the story of uh, La Amistad is the name of a slave ship. And the slave ship was uh, overturned, overrun by the slaves. They were able to revolt and to take control of the ship. And they left two sailors alive, and they thought that these sailors would take them back to Africa. But the sailors uh, tricked them and took them to America. And once they made sure, they were intercepted by the United States Navy, and they were, uh, again, put in shackles and arrested. And, And the majority of the movie takes place in a courtroom where you have uh, people, attorneys, clamoring for who do these slaves belong to. And so uh, Queen Isabella of Spain, she has a vested interest in these slaves, and she says that, that, that they belong to her. Members from the U.S. Navy who uh, recovered them when they intercepted them, they, they tried to make a case that, no, 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 they belong to us And those who the slaves are going to be sold to also had an interest. No, 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 no. There's a bill of sale. They belong to us. And finally, Matthew McConaughey, who who is an abolitionist and he's a lawyer, he defends them. And and one of the most powerful scenes in the movie, Sinke, who's one of the the, the slaves, who is uh, a leader of uh, that group, he stands up in the courtroom and he has broken English. And he says, give us free. Give us free. Give us us free. And the whole courtroom doesn't know what to do with this because this non-English speaking slave is uttering these three words. And it's clear in the courtroom what he really wants and what they want. They want freedom. They're not just property. They're arguing over who they belong to, and the overarching theme of the movie is freedom. They want to be free. They want to go home. Do you think about the gospel that way? That before knowing Jesus, our lives are characterized as being enslaved, enslaved to the law, enslaved to the opinions of people, enslaved to our own passions and our own lusts, enslaved to wanting to perform and be better than, enslaved to trying to measure up, enslaved, enslaved, enslaved. And then in the words of Lecrae, he says, I was a slave to myself. You didn't let me go. I tried getting high, but it left me low. You did what none could ever do. You cleaned up my soul and gave me life. I'm so brand new. I ain't love you first. You first love me. In my heart, I cursed you, but you set me free. Like a hero in a dream, Christ came and he rescued me. And I'm going to tell the whole world. We believe in the gospel. Jesus comes and he sets us free, free from sin's power, free from sin's punishment, free from sin's penalty, and free from the need to try to perform in order.
order to earn God's love. We're free to receive this beautiful gift graciously from the hand of God. We're free. But we're free for what? That's what I want to tease out in our passage. Psalm 100 says one of the things we're free to, right? We're free from those things and free to some things. We're free for some things. One would be the journey home to be with our maker. We're free now, unshackled, unchained, and we will make it home to see our Savior. We're free now. We're on that path. The psalmist also says in our call to worship that we're free to worship the Lord with thanksgiving and praise. But our passage this morning tells us that we are freed for something else that's equally important. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 6 and we'll read verses 1 through 5. Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So before I start, I want to just put three books before you that have shaped my thinking about this passage. One is Galatians for You by Tim Keller. The other is Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand by Paul Tripp. And the final one is uh, Sexual Sanity for Men by a man by the name of David White. So I'd commend those books uh, to you. So what are we free to? We've just said that we're free in Jesus to worship and love and serve the Father. But as we see in Paul's letter, and this is the first point, we're also freed from our sin to love others. We're freed from our sins to love others. Now, that's not explicitly in Galatians 6, but if you have watched the movie Jumanji, then you might remember that opening scene where the characters are literally dropped into Jumanji. And as soon as they're dropped into Jumanji, a a, a hippopotamus like eats one of the characters and they're just like, what in the world is going on? Where are we? And then it takes a guy to come along to give them the lay of the land, to tell them where they are, and they're in this foreign place. Well, Galatians is a lot like that. We're, we're dropping in in Galatians 6, but I want to guide you and, and, and step back to kind of show you where we are in the book. And to do that, I, I want you to look at Galatians 5, the previous chapter, but I want to, you to focus on Verses 13 through 15. Now notice what Paul writes. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
And so here what Paul is saying, you've been freed from your sins by the powerful working of the gospel, but do not use this new freedom as an opportunity to gratify your sinful flesh, to do the things you want to do, to think like you've always thought, or to live like you've always lived, or to live your life thinking about your own life. He says, no, do not use this new freedom to gratify the desires of your flesh. He says, but, notice what he says, but through love, serve one another. That word right there, serve one another. We, we are mutual bond servants of one another. We're freed right there through love to serve one another. It's the same thing me and Zach and, and in a few weeks, Brian will, will commend to you. That these one anothering passages, they flow out of love. And that's what Paul says right here. Use your freedom to love. In other words, this passage is shaped by love. It isn't merely an emotion. Paul is going to show us that it shows itself, it proves itself in actions. Now notice the next verse. Look at verse 14 of chapter 5. He says, for the whole law... Is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's ironic because he says the whole law is summarized in one word, but then Paul gives us six Greek words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It was the end of the passage that I had Scott read to us. This, this, he's quoting this from the Old Testament. But I think what Paul is saying, these six words are a part of the same idea. And you can't separate any of that command from the whole. He's actually saying you have to look at these six words in light of one unbreakable command. It's to love neighbor. So notice the command. You shall use your freedom to love, and love must show itself in service. But look at the object of our love. Who does he say we should love? He says our neighbor. From Luke chapter 10, we know who neighbor is. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says our neighbor is anyone, even our enemies, in proximity, who's in need. Right? So we're supposed to love our neighbor. And, and, and those, that, that is how Jesus would define our neighbor. Well, what type of love? What should that love look like? He says, it's the way that we love ourselves. Have you thought about it? Like, we don't have to teach ourselves to love ourselves. I mean, our, we, 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 we can go through trauma and, and, and that's broken, but. We kind of come here looking after self and caring about self and wanting whatever ourselves want. We get up and we bathe and we wash dead skin off of us and germs and we brush our teeth and we perhaps work out because we think that we love our body and this is the one body God gives us to steward. We make coffee because we want to be alert we commune with Jesus and the, the Father and the Spirit in prayer and, and just his word because we believe that, 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 that we lack wisdom 
We believe that our hearts were created to know God. We believe that, that though we see this world around us, that there is a world where the, the builder and maker of this new city is God. And so a way, in a way that we love ourselves by stewarding our souls, we're loving ourselves because we're thinking about not just this life, but the life to come. And we go to work and, and we provide and we eat every day and we rest every day. We do all of these things because we love self. Paul says, to the degree that we love self, protect self, care for self, provide for self, look after self, that this is the standard to which we're to love one another. In seminary, I used to study at the same coffee shop. And every day at the same time, this older couple would come in. And in year one of seminary, I remember it, the, the older gentleman would open the door for his wife. He would uh, go and, and clear off a table where they would sit, and he would wipe it down. And he would go to the cash register and order two drinks, and he would bring the drinks to the table. And it, it looked as if this was their daily rhythm. And something happened over those uh, three and a half, four years where their relationship changed that uh, he started to walk a little slower. First, he was on a cane, and, and then uh, he was in a wheelchair, and, and you would see her wheeling him in. Um, then he couldn't drive, and you would see her pull up in the first parking lot and uh, get out of the car and walk around the side and get him out, and then she would come and open the door, and, and people would, would assist him. Um, and then he was too weak to come into the coffee shop, and so she would come in by herself and, and order two coffees and, and take them out and walk to his side and give him his, and she would get hers, and uh, they would uh, go back home. Uh, and then one day she came in, and uh, she was alone, and he wasn't in the car. And I kept seeing her come in alone, and he had passed. He had been diagnosed with an illness, but just watching her, watching him love her, but then watching her love him, she became his feet. She became his chauffeur. She became his arms. In other words, she was loving him even as she cared for herself. And Paul says the gospel, that it frees us to live like this. Now, Jesus says the entire law hinges off of two commandments. Love God and love neighbor. And I've noticed a strange thing in Christendom. Many who want to be spot on dot every I, cross every T when it comes to theology, when it comes to guarding public worship, when it comes to this part of that commandment of loving God, they, they, they get that right. But that same zeal and love and affection and eagerness, it does not translate into loving neighbor. John Calvin says that this is not a new thing. Listen to what he says. This is, his, it, this is in his commentary on this book. He says, piety to God, I will acknowledge it ranks higher than love for the brethren. 
And therefore, the observance of the first table is of more valuable in the sight of God than the observance of the second. And here's what he says. He says, it frequently happens that none are more zealous and regular in observing those religious ceremonies directed towards God than the hypocrites. God, therefore, chooses to make trial of our love to himself by that love of our brother, which he enjoins us to cultivate. God represents himself to us in the brethren and in their persons. He demands what is due to himself. The love with which men naturally cherish towards themselves ought to regulate our love for neighbor. I won't tell you what John Calvin calls the people who live like that. It's in his commentary. You go look it up. It seems to me that Calvin and Paul, that they're saying this thing, that if we want good schools for our children, should we not care about schools for other children? If we share the gospel with loved ones and with our families and we do family devotion and we bring family to church and we want our family to know the resurrection and the life, should we not want neighbor to have the same truth? That's what we call evangelism. It is taking this precious gospel that we share with our loved ones, but it's moving outside of our family unit. If we want our white brothers and children to be given the benefit of the doubt in the court of law, if we want them to be able to run in the streets without the fear of being stopped, should we not want that for all young men? Loving neighbor as we love self, it means that whatever good I desire for me and mine, I desire it for all, regardless of socioeconomic background, regardless of family systems, regardless of what neighborhood they grow in, regardless of who they are. Now, why? Because this is the essence of the world that Jesus is bringing in. There is no sickness for anyone in the new heavens and the new earth. There is no suffering for anyone in the new heavens and the new earth. There is no death for anyone in the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth will be a place where all of God's people are afforded all of God's things, and it is not based on any merit other than the work of Christ. And here's what Paul is saying. That needs to break into how we live here and now. The way that we love neighbor is how we love ourselves. What do we want for ourselves that's good and right and holy, that is in accord with God's word, is what we are to want for our neighbor. That's why I love LeBron James. I think he's the second greatest player to ever play the game behind Michael Jordan. But there's a theme in his life. LeBron's inner circle is the same kids he grew up with in Akron. That when LeBron James left Cleveland to go to Miami, to go to L.A., 
We don't know what city and what people he still adores and cares for. He's made it to the top. And yet he's not forgotten about those on the bottom. If you go right across the street from our church, you'll see a mini farm, so reap feed. And here's their logo. Here's their vision statement. Until everybody eats. Everybody. That's love for neighbor right there. Now, the next thing I think we see in our passage, I think Paul flushes out what he's building in, in, in Galatians chapter 5. He actually flushes it out right there in Galatians chapter 6. In other words, he's commanding that we love and he's commanding that love show itself through serving one another, that we love neighbor as self. And then he says, okay, well, what does it look like? And I want to submit to you that Paul gives us two pictures of what loving and serving one another looks like. What are these two pictures? That's the second point, the two pictures. It's restoring and bearing. Restoring and bearing. Now look at chapter 6, our passage, verse 1. It says, brothers, notice he's talking to the body of Christ. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So Paul seems, he's talking to Christians, but he's actually saying within the body, some might be caught in a transgression, ensnared, and then found out. I think what Paul is saying is that we should expect that as we journey home to be with Jesus, some of us will get tripped up and ensnared along the way. He's envisioning a brother or a sister or a child who is losing an ongoing battle with sin. Not only are they growing weak, but the shame of their sin has been causing them to hide it. But then they're, they're, they're caught, that it, it, that it surfaces, that, that, that they've been struggling and wrestling with this, that, that they've tried to minimize, they've tried to manage, but then sin just kind of breaks through it and they're caught. Maybe it's drinking. Starts with one drink. Then it's drinking every night, and then it's multiple drinks every night. And for a while, this person can manage that. But then they're blacking out, they're missing work, and it surfaces that, 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 there, that there, there's a problem. Or since her husband's death, right, Priscilla has had little desire to do anything. She spends hours of her time in front of a television and she isn't watching it. She doesn't take care of herself. She doesn't go to church. She barely leaves her home. And it's not until a concerned neighbor goes to visit that they realize that she is suffering from deep depression and grief. But what about Andy? His lust is spinning out of control. He can barely look at a woman without impure thoughts. He's living a secret life and he's scared, and he's caught, and he wants help, but he's afraid to ask. Or maybe it's a single mother, and it's rage and bitterness 
At work, she's a model employee. She, she responds with grace to her direct reports and her superiors and her customers. But at, at, at home, she's a different person. Her children see a different mom. She's impatient. She's bitter. She's on edge. There's no restraint in her speech. And she's having to wear all the hats. She's the sole provider, the sole disciplinarian, that she's the sole educator, that, that, that everything is upon her. And all the while, the baby's father, he is remarried with a new family and the little $124 a month that you get from child support, it's not enough. And it's crushing you. So that when your little kids draw pictures of home, the picture they draw of mommy has fire coming out of her mouth, right? And teachers are asking like, hey, what's going on here? She's been found out. Or maybe it's racist thinking, that you grew up in a home where, where your race was superior and you heard the innuendos and the comments, but then somehow you met Jesus and, and Jesus has given you a new mind, a new heart, but then you go back down that path. Feelings of superiority surface, prejudicial thinking surfaces biases surface, and you catch it in your mind, but then it comes out in a joke. That's what Paul Tripp is talking about in his book. He gives us all of these instances when people are caught. And here's what he writes. He says, in each of our lives, the drama of sin and suffering plays itself out. The horrors of our past may rear their ugly heads at any moment, and secret struggles can grow more and more and more difficult. That's what Paul is talking about. Someone has been going through it, and they're caught. Now, he doesn't speak about being caught from the perspective of of the one caught. But just to be really honest, the person may be afraid of being caught. But trust me, over time, being found out is good. It's God's grace. If God allows us to cover and to hide and to battle alone, he will be treating us as bastard children. But he's not. He's a good father who exposes and who brings to light that he might touch those parts of our hearts that he might heal. And so Paul is talking to not the one caught explicitly in our passage. He's talking to the ones who do the catching. The ones who are proximate to the one who is caught. And perhaps the one who, perhaps you're the one who uncovers the sin. That too is providential. You were at the right time in the right sphere of influence, at the right church, in the right friend group, in the right community group, or in the right marriage, or with the right children who have the right teacher, or who live next door to the right neighbor for the right reason, that God would touch them and deliver them and bring them out. They've been living a living hell, and God uses people to pull them out. How do you respond when you're the one, when you find somebody out? You got some options. One is rage and vengeance. 
Another is minimizing and indifference. Oh, it's not that bad. Another is making their struggle personal. It's all about you. How could you do this to me, right? It it becomes personal. You're worried about how it makes you look or how it makes you feel. Another one is pride and arrogance. Like, like how could you do that? What's wrong with you? And did you notice that, that none of those is what Paul says in our passage? When someone is caught in a transgression, did you notice how Paul says we're to respond? He says, restore him gently. That's the first. It's, it's two things he's going to say. He says, restore him gently. The term used for restore was used for setting a dislocated bone back into place. And that's painful because the bone is not designed to be out of socket and out of joint. And the nerves, it it is painful. And yet when you set it back in place, that too is painful. But over time, there is healing and shalom. It's been put back in place. The word for restore could also mean mending a broken fish fishing net. Right? It's restoring, putting it back into place, putting it back into connection. But notice the second idea. Do so gently. This is not being passive or uber nice. That this, this, this Greek word here, protest, it's, it's the condition, protest, of being calm and self-controlled, focused and wise. A better translation is strength under control. I love that. One guy, Tim Kite, here's what he writes. I'm going to read this section because I think it's, it's, it's profound. He says, the history of this word is fascinating. Pros, right, was a Greek military term that was used to define a horse that had been trained for battle. Wild stallions were brought down from a mountain and they were broken for riding. And they retained their fierce spirit, their courage, and their power, but they were disciplined to respond to the slightest nudge or pressure of the rider's leg. They could gallop at 35 miles an hour into war. They were unafraid of spears, unafraid of arrows, unafraid of torches. That's pros, right? But once they were trained, they were given a new name, protis, which is the word for gentle here. You see the image? This wild, stallion, courageous horse who is now broken and can move with grace and can take commands. That's the image. It's strength controlled. That's what Paul uses here. Now, why is this virtue important? Because the gentleness here does not react impulsively to the Christian caught in transgression. Rather, it responds intentionally. It sees the situation with clarity and then responds effectively. If the situation involving the disobedient person calls for gentleness, then Protus is gentle. If the situation causes for toughness, 
then protest is tough. If the situation calls for patient and discernment, then we're patient and discerning. If if restoring a disobedient person requires wisdom, then we're wise. He says we can err on being too lenient or we can err on being too harsh. This is precisely why we need the spirit of gentleness. That's beautiful. That's the first picture. It We show love for one another through our desire to restore with strength, courage, strength, refined. That's one. But the other picture that Paul is painting in the passage is is this idea of bearing one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, burden, I don't think, is the same as restoring someone caught in a transgression. I think these are two different pictures. Bear one another's burden. A burden can be something that we carry, like an indwelling sin, ongoing sin. But but if you look at our uh, reflection quote, I think Tim Keller nails it here. He actually says that a burden can be a simple responsibility like raising a child or renovating a living space, or it can be a difficulty or a problem. A burden can be something that that is long, right, and hard, but it also can be something situational or seasonal. Think about COVID-19, that many of us whose lives were comfortable and, and fairly predictable that it's just like somebody dropped a boulder in our lives and now everything is just sort of out of whack. And, and, and for some of us, right, that this is a momentary burden, right? We got to figure out how to do, educate our kids and we got to work out childcare and we got to figure out how do you feed kids at home all day long and, and we got to figure out how to put together a budget that works and we got to figure, I mean, so, but, but then over time, we may get the hang of it. So we, we may have needed initial help carrying the burden, but through wisdom and through research and through help, we're able to sort of do what Paul says right there in verse 5. We can start bearing our own load, right? So that, that, that's one way burdens work. They come in, they get heavy, we get stronger, we get short-term help, and we're good to go. And then there are other burdens. They linger, and it's hard. Now, the question is, what's the posture of the church when we see those among us carrying these heavy burdens over a long haul? I want to illustrate something. All right. This is a 25-pound ball, and it's heavy. Now, what happens if you see someone in the body going through life, carrying this. And that's all they're doing is carrying this. And this can be an addiction. And this can be financial mismanagement. This can be uh, moving from job to job. This can be raising five kids on your own. This can be a host of other things. What do you do when you see someone carrying this thing around forever? I'm going to tell you what happens. It starts to get heavy. And your knees start to buckle and your shoulders start to hurt. 
And, 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 and at some point, you just want to drop it. You don't want to live. And so the church has a, we have, we have options. One option is we can stand from the, the sideline and, and way to go at a boy, and we never get in the game with them. One option is to say, well, can't you just get your life together? Make wise decisions. Or the way that Jesus is calling us to, it's not by spectating from the side or from the top. It's by coming right here on this stage. And if we were not socially distancing, I would have someone come and do it with me. And that other person would carry this burden with me. Now that means someone has to get close enough to me to shoulder this with me. It means that this 25 pounds is going to be split between the two of us. And we're going to carry 12.5 apiece. And it may mean that this other person carries the lion's share of it for a while so I can get healthy. But I think what Paul is saying, you don't sit by on the sidelines and watch people carry this while we applaud from the stands. He's saying that true love gets in there with them and it says, let me help. Let me help. These are the pictures of love that Paul puts before us. Do we love that way? I desire that for us. Where is our power? I'm going to close with this last point. Where is our power to do this? You do know that doing this, loving the other this way, it's impossible outside of the gospel. Did you notice the warnings in the passage? Paul says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul is actually saying, it's dangerous when we start helping people. It's dangerous when we have to restore people who have fallen. It's dangerous when we have to bear burdens. Now, why? I think one of the reasons it's dangerous is because of pride and self-righteousness. We begin to feel like we're the saviors. We pat ourselves on the back because we gave this amount of money away, because we helped this person, because we came to their rescue, and then we start to feel like I'm the best thing since sliced bread. Paul says we begin to think that we're something when we're actually nothing. We can be impatient when we're trying to do this work. We can be frustrated because people don't change on our terms. Another danger can be envy that when we help a person and come alongside and their lives turn out for the better, we start to hate it because all of a sudden they don't need us. We felt important. And now they have a better grip on the gospel and God's grace than we do. Paul is actually saying, do you see what's happening? As we do this work, we can be prideful, we can be bitter, we can be angry. So where is the power to do this without moving into pride or without moving into despair? Did you notice what Paul says? He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, he's actually saying, doing this was something that Jesus actually did. He is the embodiment of loving neighbor. He is the embodiment of bearing burdens. 
He is the embodiment of drawing near to those of us being crushed with our sin, those of us who were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, those of us who were enslaved and in bondage. He drew near. He left the right hand of the Father and came to earth. He was birthed through his mother's uterus. He, he came so close to us that he became like us and yet without sin. He did all of this drawing near in order to take the burden of our sin and of God's wrath away from us so that our backs can stand strong because our burden has been removed. This is why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate burden barrier, and to the degree, Redeemer, that that truth works in our hearts, not our minds, but to the degree, it's like yeast. You work that yeast inside that dough. You work it in and work it in and work it in, and then the whole loaf explodes. That's what Paul is calling us to. He's actually saying, unless the gospel of Christ works into the hearts of God's people, we will never explode with these one another in commands. And so... Our first impulse isn't to go and help. Our first impulse is to be mindful of how much we've been helped. It's to be mindful of how much Jesus has borne for us. It's to be mindful of what he has done for us on the cross and what he continues to do. That right there, when that gets into our hearts, it moves us. Did you notice what Paul says? Those who are spiritual should restore. In a spirit of gentleness, don't underestimate those two references to the spirit. This is Paul's way of saying, only those who walk by the spirit can do this. And did you notice what is sandwiched between Galatians 5, 13 and 15 and Galatians 6, 1 through 5? Look at Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. And there is that word again, gentleness. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited or envying one another. Paul is actually saying we cannot restore people in the spirit of gentleness unless the Holy Spirit is in us making us gentle people. In other words, we can do none of this apart from the gospel and none of this apart from the Holy Spirit. He compels us. He convicts us. He empowers us. He encourages us. I want to close with this, Redeemer. You've seen it. Our power is the Spirit. Our power is the person and work of Christ. But I'll close with this. When I was growing up, I was a real Michael Jordan fan. I still have Michael Jordan basketball cards. 
I still like Jordans. I haven't bought any in about a year, but I, I still like them. This last dance documentary, everything is silent in my house when it comes on. I wanted to be like Mike. But my prized possession growing up was a life-size six-foot-six picture of Michael Jordan. And it was a growth chart. Every day I got up, I, I wanted to be six-six and built like Michael Jordan. And I had a basketball goal in my front yard, and we played basketball sun up to sundown. I wanted to be like Mike. And every morning I got up, am I going to make it to 6'6"? And I never grew past six feet. But I wanted to measure up. I wanted to measure up. Look, being spirit-filled is a source of debate. Some say to measure up to the Spirit, you need to speak in tongues. Some say to measure up to the Spirit, you need to perform miracles. Some say to measure up to the Holy Spirit, there needs to be the anointing over you. Others talk about spiritual gifts. But you want to know what Paul says in our passage? The litmus test for being spiritual and mature is this right here. Do we bear burdens? Do we restore with gentleness? How are you doing in that area, Redeemer? My prayer is that the Lord would grow us into the image of Christ, that he would do it by the Spirit, that we would be spiritual people doing spiritual deeds to the glory of Christ. Pray with me. Father, I commend these words to your people and trust that you would be doing this work in all of our hearts. Make us more like Christ. Motivate us in this direction through the gospel and through the indwelling of your spirit. I pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Redeemer, I'm going to pronounce the benediction over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And may you enjoy this day with a sense of his peace with you. Amen.